attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I have no friggin' idea when this episode is going to come out. And the reason for that is because I woke up this morning and I just felt like recording something. Not just any something. I felt like recording specifically about Action Comics number 252. Now, If you've been listening to my show for any length of time, you probably know that talking about Superman comics is anything but new territory for me. In fact, I think if you were to tally everything up, I've probably talked more about Superman in the lifetime of this podcast than I have any other subject. And the reason for that's actually rather simple. I am a huge Superman fan. As far as superheroes are concerned, to me, they come no higher than Superman. His his honesty, his virtue, his heroism, his perfection as a, as a person. These are qualities, values, philosophies that have always resonated with me on, on just a very primitive level. I don't know why. There's something about a character being this powerful and yet this morally perfect? I don't know why, but that concept just sings for me. So that, I think, is a huge part of Superman's appeal to me. And as I look back on things, though, one of the things that I kind of have to acknowledge is that I haven't talked a whole lot about pre-crisis Superman. I mean, there's been a little bit, but not tons and tons and tons of it. So... Part of what I want to do is set all of that right, but also I just want to talk about one of my favorite issues of Superman ever, which, again, is Action Comics number 252. And I must say, the this is one of those comics that I didn't... When I say I owned it as a kid, I didn't own the original Action Comics number 252. I owned... A reprint. It, basically, this uh, there was a uh, a series of reprints that DC introduced circa 1999 
called the millennium, uh, the millennium editions. And the idea is that DC would take a, just kind of cut through the glorious ice cream of their publication history and reprint what you, what one might call important storylines. The Millennium Edition reprint is not what I will be discussing today. No, what I'm going to be discussing is actually the Silver Age classics, which were kind of the, I guess, the forerunner to the Millennium Editions. And it was a very sim, uh, similar concept, except it was uh, the Silver Age classics were specifically about the Silver Age, where I think the Millennium Editions were anything that uh, DC decided was worthwhile. So the Silver Age classics came along, I think, at a fairly opportune moment for me, in as much as this, I would say reprints in general, but specifically the Silver Age, kind of haunted my comic book fandom when I was a kid. For some reason, reprints were just nigh inescapable for me. Now, I came up in my comics fandom at a time and a place when, by all rights, I should have been drooling over the latest offerings from Todd McFarlane or, let me think, who else was, I guess maybe Jim Lee. Eric Larson, basically anybody who would go on to found Image Comics, right? And because of these reprints, my taste in comic book art has never really been limited to just one thing, one style, you know? And that there, were, there was a point in time when that kind of put me at odds with the comic book collecting fraternity, as it was, in, in my school, right? Everybody wanted the new issue of whatever Jim Lee was drawing or whatever Todd McFarlane was drawing or Bart Sears. Cause there was a time when it may sound funny now, but there was a time when Bart Sears was every bit the marquee talent that Jim Lee is or was. And that was just as interesting as I might've found some of that stuff to me, comics could, they started off from the get go being more than just art. But certainly comic book art could be more than just, like I say, the Image Comics co-founders. It could be so much more than that. Not taking anything away from the Image Comics guys. I'm just saying that my taste in art had always been broader than that. And a great big part of that is due to all of the reprints that I, that I read when I was a kid. I mean, there was the Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Volumes 1 and 2, The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told. Uh, the Silver Age uh, classic reprints, just the list goes on. And so uh, because of that, I had a taste for the likes of Jim Mooney, uh, Kurt Swan. Uh, let me think, who else? Uh, I guess probably uh, Al Plastino, Wayne Boring, people like that. To me, comics could be so much more, you know, and there's a lot to be said for the sort of clean layouts of the Silver Age. I just had a very soft spot for that type of art. But be perfectly honest about it. I also had a real soft spot for that for those types of stories because they may have been more plot-driven than character-driven, but you could still derive a lot of character from, from those old Silver Age uh, stories. And that wasn't necessarily, you know, their reason for being. Their reason for being was to be uh, exciting, you know, lots of action, you know, wall to wall, panel to panel, nonstop action, right? And 
then as now, I've got an appreciation for that. But I also just kind of like the, I guess, the simpler qualities of, of the Silver Age and, and what the Silver Age was capable of delivering. And so in relation to that, one of the uh, Silver Age classic reprints that I made a point of picking up was the reprint of Action Comics number 252, because I'd heard about it, just to say this story, or these stories, I should say. I'd heard about them, never really read it, you know? It had just somehow eluded me. So this was a really good opportunity to see what Superman was all about in the Silver Age. And I gotta tell you, it is fucking cool. But um, anyway, get into the story. Uh, This is Action Comics number 252, and I gotta tell you, this is one of those unintentionally perhaps suggestive covers because it's Superman coming face to face with Supergirl for the very first time. And literally it looks like he's looking at her chest and literally the first words out of his mouth are great guns. So anyway, I've always just, even as a kid, I mean, I had a kind of filthy imagination. I just thought that was sort of clever, but uh, I guess moving away from that, this is a, just a, a great Kurt Swan, Stan K cover. And honestly, this would have been inc- this would have been a real kick in the nards to comic book reading audiences of 1959. The idea of a woman as part of the ongoing continuity who's related to Superman, has a very Superman-like costume, and has all of his powers, that would have taken a lot of adjustment. So this comic, uh, this comic book cover, it's easy for, I think, people to forget how shocking this image really would have been in its time. But shocking as it most certainly was. So um, the other thing about this is the, the wreckage of her spaceship, Supergirl's spaceship, it... It just has this very vintage 1950s sci-fi quality to it. You know, it's smashed up in the front. And you'd think nobody could have survived that. But then, of course, this is somebody who has the same exact powers as Superman, a subject I shall be coming back to momentarily. This is somebody with the exact same powers as Superman, so, of course, she's unharmed in, in the crash. So, and even, just even the caption on the cover, it says... Introducing the Supergirl from Krypton. Is she friend or foe? And that's a very good question to ask, especially since the cover gives no indication about her loyalties one way or the other. So all around, this is, I think this is one of those unsung, incredibly powerful covers. It's, I think it's a little bit of a gimme these days, only because we know, I guess, which side Supergirl's on. But again, people picking this comic book up off the rack in 1959 wouldn't necessarily have known that. So this is, I think it's an incredibly underrated and powerful cover considering how much would have been unknown to people whenever they were first looking at it. So certainly there's that to think about. Now, as I say, I'm going to be working off of a, um, Millennium Edition reprint here as opposed to the Silver Age Classic. I just wanted to mention the Silver Age Classic because fucking nobody ever talks about those, and I think that's a real shame. So, anyway, uh, we're not going to start off, though, talking about 
the Supergirl from Krypton. Nope. First up, this is a story entitled The Menace of Metallo. And it's basically a splash page. This, this is page one. It's pretty much a splash page of a guy in this sort of maroon business suit standing in front of Lois Lane, blocking this barrage of bullets from a drive-by shooting and thinking to himself, holy shit, I'm, I'm in a real mess here because if Superman and I ever show up at the same place in the, uh, in, in the same time, Lois Lane's going to know that I'm not Superman, but I'm Metallo, the metal man. And, of course, Superman's swooping around in the background because this was a Silver Age sort of second cover, and you really couldn't have Superman not be there. So, plus, it's important to emphasize that, yeah, this guy may, may look, like, facially like Superman. He may facially resemble Superman. He is not, in fact, Superman. So, kitties, I guess, need to be told. So, anyway... That takes us over to page two. You've got John Corbin driving around, musing over the fact that he has, in fact, committed the perfect crime. And he, in his uh, thought captions, he goes on to explain exactly how it is that he's committed the perfect murder and why it is that he's never going to get caught for it, why he committed the murder in the first place, and other kinds of exposition-type stuff. When all of a sudden, he loses control of his car and swerves off into this rocky embankment. And we can assume that he, if he's alive at all, it's only just barely. Meanwhile, this older car, driven by the secretary of Professor Emmett Vale, pulls over. And this is one of those things about the Silver Age that I just fucking love. You know, this is a guy who, for whatever reason, has dedicated his life to science. He sees somebody in need. And he takes it upon himself to save this man's life. And we don't need, you know, an, a, 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 an entire six-issue miniseries explaining, you know, why it is that this guy is so committed to helping others and why he's so committed to medicine and all this stuff. It's because when he was a kid, uh, his, his mom uh, died of cancer and he, he was powerless to, to save her. And so ever since then, he's committed his life to healing those uh, who 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 are in desperate need of help? He's, you know, you just you don't get any of that bullshit. He's just a guy who cares about other people, and you can impose whatever motives and values on that that you want, and it's just not this di- just didactic fucking mess of a, of anyway, whatever. It's it, it it this just works for me is what I'm saying. The amount of underplaying here, on page two works for me. The other thing though, is that I've read, a decent amount of. EC comics, you know, crime suspense stories and, you know, things like that. And, you know, Tales from the Crypt and whatnot. And I got to tell you, the first couple of pages, or sorry, pages, the first couple of panels here on page two really look like they could have come from, you know, any EC comic book that I've ever read. You know, it's just got this sort of dark, moody, crime noir type of atmosphere to it. And, you know, before too long... You know, it, it definitely becomes a superhero story. But these first few pages, I think, you know, you don't necessarily have to assume that this is the beginning of a Superman story. And I'll get more into that in just a bit, I think. But, you know, for right now, on page three, we see Emmett Vale, or Professor Emmett Vale, uh, saving John Corbin's life because he has no idea who John Corbin truly is. And it's 
it's basically just a, a lot of exposition because here it truly is needed. You know, we need to know what exactly John Corbin is, what he's become, uh, you know, how his uh, new cyborg body works, et cetera, et cetera. He's powered by uranium, you know, all that stuff. It's important that these things be understood by the reader. And so that stuff takes us from page three over to page four, whereupon Professor Vale's about to de- uh, tell Corbin what substance other than uranium uh, can power his robot body. But before he can, there's this huge avalanche of boulders that uh, come crashing through the wall. And Professor Vale, not exactly being a, a spring chicken, has a stroke from the panic of it all and collapses. And here you've got Metallo. He's basically leaving Professor Vale for dead while he goes on his way to do his thing. Which takes us over to page five, where, because of the fact this is a Superman comic book, Corbin gets a job at the Daily Planet. And apparently he faked his, his resume or something because Perry White says that he's checked out all of John Corbin's job references, and they all seem pretty good. So, welcome aboard. At which time he's introduced to Clark Kent and Lois Lane, because nobody else really works at the Daily Planet. Corbin squeezes Clark's hand extra hard, and Clark has to pretend like it hurts, or else Corbin would guess that he's Superman. And this is just sort of the leap in logic that I just... You, you have to accept this about the Silver Age. You know, this is the way that comics were done at the time, where it's not that Clark really thought, or rather, I don't think it's so much that Clark really thought that Corbin would figure out that he's Superman. It's just, this could be some kid's first Superman comic, and he may not know that Clark is Superman. So you need a thought balloon where Clark acknowledges the fact that, yes, he is, in fact, Superman. So... That's really, that's really all that's, that should be going on on this page, I think. But what do I know? So Corbin, being a little bit of an alpha, uh, alpha male, decides he's going to move in on Lois Lane, who wastes no time whatsoever in shooting him down, at which time Corbin realizes, you know what? My re- uranium capsule is almost used up. I need to find more uranium. Fast. So... As all of that's going on, Clark overhears that uh, a submarine, a, a nuclear submarine, is in distress. So he switches to a Superman outfit and swoops into action. And guys, this is on page six. It's important for you guys to understand that, you know, when you think about it, this story's got a fairly lax pace. We don't see Superman until page fucking six. The story itself's only 13 pages long, so do the math. The first time we see Superman in action on this story is on page six. Anyway, just kind of cool. Now, another neat thing about the Silver Age is right here on page six, panel four, where Superman folds up all of Clark's clothes, his shoes, his hat, all that stuff, folds all that up into a compact ball and hides it inside of his cape. Now, this is the sort of thing that I don't think the burn age of Superman really covered all that much. Basically, Superman would just leave his Clark Kent clothes just laying around. God forbid anybody should find them because they're just regular clothes. Here in the pre-crisis, though, specifically the Silver Age, he's wearing 
clothes that are made from special fibers that they can survive being compacted down into this tiny little ball and then hidden inside of his cape and it's not going to screw anything up it's not going to destroy his clothes he's not going to spend a fortune going through uh you know new clothes every single day because of just the craziness that is this man's life and i don't know why this is just one of those things that has always worked for me and i'm not saying that the silver age is better than the burn age or the burn age is better than the silver age or anything like that i'm just saying that as a kid, I appreciated the fact that the Burn Age, which was well underway by the time the Silver Age classic uh, reprint of Action Comics number 252 came out, I appreciated the fact that the Burn Age, it just had its own approach to telling stories. And the Burn Age, as it was at the time, it was fine for Superman at that time. Just like this Silver Age uh, story was fine for Superman back in the Silver Age. It's, to me, they're all equally Superman in a way. So it just, I like it, is what I'm saying. So anyway, Superman swoops into action. And it's, I think it's really only on page 7 that we find that this uh, a nuclear submarine, the Neptune, they're actually not necessarily on some kind of a military mission or anything like that. They're actually trying to set a... They're actually trying to set a, a record for, I guess, the, the longest amount of time spent underwater. And so, basically, how much time they've spent submerged. And Superman basically inhales, and it's kind of funny how he can do this, but he inhales a lung full of oxygen without actually processing it. And then he blows the oxygen in, uh, into the sub, oxygen rather than carbon dioxide. So either Superman exhales oxygen, which I guess is a possibility, or else he has the ability to not completely take oxygen, vast amounts of oxygen, in, uh, into his lungs without... Um, I, now I'm blanking on what, the, on what the term is called, but basically processing it so that it, what he exhales is carbon dioxide. I just find that rather interesting. Is that carbon dioxide? Is that what you exhale? Fucking whatever you exhale. It's not oxygen, though. You inhale oxygen, you exhale something else. Pretty sure it's carbon dioxide. But uh, whatever. I'm not an expert. I'm a computer tech, not a scientist. Anyway, meanwhile, Metallo goes on a raid and basically steals every single bit of uranium that he can possibly find. Basically because he, he needs this in order to stay alive. And I find this rather interesting rather telling about who John Corbin is as a character. Because like I said, these stories don't rise and fall on character, but you can still derive a whole lot of character from these stories. Specifically that Corbin needs uranium in order to continue living. His first instinct is to steal it. Now, he's basically stealing the only way that he knows about to keep his heart beating. He never once thinks to ask anybody if they can give him uranium. No, he just, his, his first instinct is to just steal it. And that's just, I mean, I think most rational people would, they would at least ask first, you know. Corbin thinks to himself, there's no polite, legal way I can get the uranium I need. I can't purchase it or mine it myself. I can only steal it. But that, I don't know how true that really is. No, he can't mine it. He probably can't purchase it. 
But who's to say that if he asked for it, say, guys, I need this in order to live. Who's to say that people wouldn't just give it to him? It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, so this is really the uh, prelude to Corbin going on the rampage and stealing every single bit of uranium that he can possibly find. And he's called by the media Metallo the Metal Man, and he's public enemy number one. And I think even by this point, uh, calling any famous criminal public enemy, I think that would have been a little bit of a misnomer in as much as the public enemy era of American crime primarily existed because of the fact that we didn't really have an FBI to deal with crime on a federal level. And so once, once there was an FBI, I mean, this was kind of the whole idea behind the G-men. Once there was an FBI, this whole idea of somebody being this untouchable public enemy that because of the fact that he's crossing over so many jurisdictions, you know, there's really no one who, there's no single law enforcement agency that can go after him. That kind of comes to an end once the FBI is a force in American law enforcement. So it's just interesting. So a little bit of a misnomer, even more so because of the fact that as far as I know, Corbin's mostly sticking with areas and targets located inside of Metropolis. So you'd think that it would really be the Metropolis Police Department that has to go after Corbin and take him down for all of this stuff. But again, it's just a comic. Still, I at least wanted to mention it. So elsewhere, uh, this, I suppose, yeah, this is back at the uh, Daily Planet uh, news office. You've got Lois, Corbin, and Clark sitting around listening to the radio where it comes out that the famous movie star, Sherry Blair, is about to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. And her idea here is that she expects Superman to come to the rescue in case something goes wrong. And so Clark fakes having a stomachache because of some sour pickles that he ate for lunch. And so he goes home to lay down. So uh, Clark and Corbin make fun of him about it. But, you know, it's a good enough excuse for... Clark to run to the stockroom, put on a cape, and go flying. And sure enough, uh, what's her name? Sherry Blair's uh, barrel goes over the uh, goes over Niagara Falls. And let's face it, this is probably going to fucking kill her because Niagara Falls is nothing to sneeze at. Superman catches the barrel, safely deposits it on a uh, on dry land, but does it in a way to avoid being seen. Where we discover Sherry really has learned her lesson because she realizes she would have been killed if she'd uh, gone over the falls and hadn't gotten lucky by deflecting the barrel off of a rock or something. So elsewhere, outside of the Daily Planet news building, Lois Lane is the target of a drive-by shooting, but luckily John Corbin happens to be passing by, stands in front of her, and blocks all of the bullets from hitting her. And... Lois makes the assumption that John Corbin is, in fact, Superman. And this is cause for an immediate uh, I don't know, change in behavior for Lois, whereas before she was dismissive of John and didn't want to have anything to do with him. Now, all of a sudden, she's in love with him. And at the same time, John realizes he's in a little bit of a spot here in as much as if Superman and he ever show up at the same time and in the same place, 
Lois Lane's going to know that he's a fraud. So, later, Corbin and Lois are having dinner at a uh, Chinese food restaurant, and Lois's uh, fortune says, neither faint heart nor false heart e'er won a, a fair maid. And uh, what do you suppose we're going to be hearing about that again before too long? Anyway, later, John Corbin puts on a Superman outfit and then visits uh, Fort Tabor Army Base in full Superman disguise so that he can get access to their, uh, to their uranium. And he makes a big show of <clears throat> picking up a, uh, this military vehicle as a demonstration of his strength in order to convince the, uh, the soldiers on duty that, yes, he is, in fact, Superman. And I guess, you know what, maybe that would be needed because of the fact that anybody can put on a Superman outfit and say, hey, I'm Superman, assholes. So, anyway. Corbin slips out of sight, breaks into their vault, steals their uranium, loads it in his car, and would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for that pesky Kryptonian. Uh, who he sees zipping around in the sky. So Metallo picks up this bronze deer, chucks it at Superman. And I guess he just doesn't really know Superman all that well, because if he really thought that was going to stop Superman, then I, I really don't know what to tell you, John. But uh, anyway, Superman would have stopped John, except at that exact moment, this it looks like a museum... Uh, they're putting together an exhibit for a, 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 a museum, the Worldwide Sculptors Exhibition. It's a picture of Atlas, or rather a statue of Atlas, holding a, a, a giant globe. Basically, it's Atlas holding up the weight of the entire world on his shoulders. And um, the, the globe drops, the cable snaps as the globe is directly above Atlas, way too high. And it's going to be a real mess. So Superman, being the master of prioritization in these things, uh, decides, you know what, instead of capturing this dangerous supervillain here, I'm going to go ahead and uh, perform this completely unnecessary rescue. It looks like Atlas was already in a position to do it himself, but whatever, I'm going to do it myself. And, and I get it, you know, I mean, the story has got to go on beyond page 11, so... You need something that can distract Superman. So this is as good as anything, I suppose. Plus, it also is a neat little moment at the bottom of page 11, the next to last panel, where Superman catches the globe and uh, a uh, news photographer gets a picture of him holding it. He says, wow, Superman's carrying the world on his shoulders. It's a true picture of his great service to humanity. Because... I don't know about the rest of you, but when I get together with my friends, we talk like that all the time. <sighs> Meanwhile, back at Professor Emmett Vale's uh, lab, the good professor's convalesced quite a lot in uh, recent days, and so John Corbin decides to pay him a visit. And he says, by the way, what is that other power source that can uh, keep me alive? And Vale tells him it's kryptonite. I've got a sample of it right here because I was trying to find an antidote for its effects against Superman, but since your life's at stake, you need it more. This soup and this uh, kryptonite can power your heart forever. You'll never need to ever change it out. So Corbin sees this as an opportunity, and 
Jerry rigs the the uh, the uh, kryptonite at this, uh, and it looks like this is a uh, storage warehouse for what I'm what I'm guessing is some kind of a. Oh, what am I saying? No, it says right here, the Metropolis Exhibit Hall. This is basically a, a, a storage house where a lot of Superman's like replicas of Superman's different toys and uh, souvenirs and trophies and whatnot are all going to be put on display. So uh, Corbin stashes the kryptonite in a, uh, in a pipe that's just out of reach. So Superman won't be able to, to knock it out of the pipe and save himself. It's just going to sit there and slowly kill him. And so Corbin presumably with nothing in, in his chest right now, powering his heart, steals Superman's sample of kryptonite and goes off uh, to find Lois Lane. Meanwhile, Superman, he's basically fucked if he doesn't figure out some kind of a way out of this. And he says to himself, I've tried concentrating my x-ray vision on kryptonite before, to no avail, but maybe I didn't concentrate long enough. I gave up after a minute or two. Now I'll keep concentrating till I drop. And then six agonizing minutes later, I've done it. For the first time in my career, I found a way to conquer kryptonite. I've melted it. Now I can go after Metallo. My telescopic vi vision will locate him as soon as my full powers return. Which takes us over to page three, where Metallo, disguised as Superman, pays Lois a visit. And this is just a kind of, just kind of a fucking weird page because on page one we see him wandering in he catches his superman shirt on lois lane's doorknob which is enough to tear his shirt open revealing his metal body underneath and lois realizes that holy shit this guy's metallo and so metallo moves in for the kill that's panel one panel two we see metallo well actually we don't even see metallo but we infer that metallo's in his in his uh, death throes, Lois says, he's dead. He must have had a heart attack. Right as Superman swoops through her window and says, he brought it on himself, Lois. He exchanged his kryptonite for mine, not realizing I was using a fake, prop kryptonite colored green for a color picture in a weekly magazine. Apparently, kryptonite powered the mechanical heart in his metal chest. This green colored rock gave him nothing but heart failure. To which Lois thinks silently to herself, how ironic. So that fortune cookie prophecy came true. Neither faint heart nor false heart, ere won a fair maid. So this is why Clark Kent and John Corbin can never expect for Lois to love them. Superman, though, well, there's always hope there. Later, at police headquarters, some guy, some bald police captain who looks like he could have been drawn by Steve Ditko says... We were going to arrest Corbin tonight. He made one mistake, Superman. He'd wiped the gun clean, but not the cartridges he loaded the gun with. That's Corbin's print on an unfired con uh, cartridge. If Corbin thought he'd committed the perfect crime, and Superman interrupts him by saying, I know, Inspector. He was dead wrong. And it's kind of funny to think that, and that's the end of it, by the way. And it's kind of funny to think that, you know what? This story is important, but it would really be a couple of decades before it became really important because I think this is Metallo's first and last appearance. 
until something like the 70s or something like that, when John Corbin's brother, Ron Corbin, I guess, takes over as the new Metallo and comes gunning for Superman. And if you think about it, I mean, the minute you say Metallo to a lot of fans, you know, what they think of as one of Superman's more prominent enemies... Metallo is not exactly all that prominent an enemy. In fact, there's a lot of people out there who believe that if his first uh, if his first appearance hadn't hadn't been in the same issue in which Supergirl made her first appearance, odds are history would have forgotten about him. So I'm not saying that's true or that I believe it. I'm just saying that well, there's something to that idea. In general, though, I kind of—I've always found this story to be sort of emblematic of the types of stories that were pretty common back in the Silver Age, and it's just basically Superman running around doing Superman stuff. He has to take down this really weird new enemy that's come around, causing all this trouble. And I don't know why, but this is just—even as a kid, you know, reading this at, at by that point, incredibly dated story. I think I think by then it was, God, it, was, it had to be something like 40-some-odd years old or older. And I just thought, you know, there's an energy and an imagination and vitality to this story that, to me, is as good as anything that was being published, you know, at the time, like brand new at the time. And it really went a long way towards, I guess, shaping my my views of what Superman's all about. I mean, again, I love the movies. I love you know, the Burn Age comics and everything, but comics like this one showed me that Superman isn't just one thing, you know? It's not just one era. Superman can be more than that. And I just really appreciate that. So, anyway, following this story is a Congo Bill story about which I know nothing and care even less. So we're going to move right ahead to the next story uh, included in this in this comic called... The Supergirl from Krypton. And this is... Hmm, what happened? Oh, okay, so the page numbering actually starts all over again. So, huh. Okay, well, we have a, a semi-splash. It's basically a... This is, a, I guess, a, an illustration that takes up about, I should think, maybe three-quarters of the page. And it's, again, it's sort of a, a play on the cover, but just less so. It's not quite framed the exact same way, but it's a similar idea. It's uh, Superman looking at Supergirl's chest saying, Great guns! And Supergirl is introducing herself. Story picks up, One day in Metropolis where Clark Kent, who's secretly Superman, works as a reporter for the Daily Planet. And then we see Clark thinking to himself, My super hearing picked up a roaring far out of town. I'll check what it is with my telescopic vision. Great guns! A guided missile is about to crash. There's a human passenger in it. This is a job for Superman. Luckily, nobody else is in the office at the moment. But have I time to reach the rocket? It'll smash in seconds. And indeed, he's not fast enough to reach the rocket because it smashed right as Superman showed up. And Superman thinks to himself, It came at a greater speed than any rocket known on Earth before. In fact, it reminds me of the rocket that brought me to Earth this same way when I was super baby years ago. 
I survived my crash because I came from Krypton, a world of supergravity. That gave me superpowers and invulnerability in Earth's lesser gravitation. But whoever was in the rocket won't come out alive. And then Supergirl pokes up her head and says, Don't worry, Superman. I'm alive without a scratch. And from there, we get what is what many people consider to be the single biggest, I don't know, addition, for lack of a better word, to the Silver Age that Superman would undergo, at least up to this point, and maybe ever. Supergirl is incredibly important as far as setting the tone and the style of, of the, uh, of the uh, Silver Age. And so we flash back in time to the destruction of Krypton, where luckily Kara's uh, home city, uh, this is Argo City, I believe, um, it was blown free of the destruction of Kryptonite. And they were happy to be alive, especially when they discovered that there was a food machine that was, that was still working and that the people in town could stay alive indefinitely. Or so they thought, because when night fell, the entire city, the entire planetary fragment, had been converted into kryptonite, which, were, which is, of course, a substance poisonous to kryptonians. And so what they decided to do is lay down these huge sheets of lead and basically cover the, like, literally all of the ground, I would assume, in lead to protect themselves from kryptonite radiations. Years later... Uh, the scientist Zorel, and you know what? I don't, I don't actually think that Supergirl's mother is actually named here. No, it doesn't look like it. So no, it looks like the only one of Supergirl's parents that gets any kind of name is uh, Zorel. So anyway, whatever. So one day after Kara has grown into young adulthood, or young girlhood, I should say, meteors come smashing down on the city and punch holes in the, in the sheets of lead lining the streets. So Zarel hurriedly fashions a, a, a rocket to take Kara to, uh, to Earth, where she can hook up with Superman and be safe there. And so her rocket launches, barely in time, and Thera, uh, or sorry, I should say Kara, thinks to herself, My father, mother, all the people are dying. I'm an orphan of space now. Sob! And that pretty much wraps up Kara telling her story to Superman. And Superman says, You know what? Look, shit happens in life. I went through the same exact thing. My parents shot me into outer space when I was a baby. It was done by my father, Jarrell. And that's when it comes out that not only is Kara a fellow Kryptonian, she is also Superman's cousin. And from there, well, actually, before we even get into actually the, I guess, the superpower stuff, this is a point of contention, shall we say, for some people. There are purists out there who think that Superman really should be the only survivor of the planet Krypton. And 
I don't really know about that. I mean, the way I look at it, it's okay to have other Kryptonian survivors as long as you find a way to distinguish them from Superman in some way or another. The, the more like Superman you make them, that's when Superman becomes redundant. So if they're basically of the same type of moral fiber, or if they have the exact same philosophies and attitudes about life, the same worldview, one might say, as Superman, that to me is when the problem comes in. And I don't think it's a simple matter of just being able to say more Kryptonians bad, fewer Kryptonians good. I don't think it's that simple. And if I, I'll be honest with you people, I mean, if I've got one criticism of Kara Zorel over the years, it's that writers didn't always try hard enough to give her a different point of view than Superman. I mean, she was basically a female version of Superman. <clears throat> and that leads into the next thing. She's got the exact same superpowers as Superman. And that's one of those, I don't know, just unfortunate aspects of the canon that, I mean, at this point, I don't see that it's ever going to change. But I would have thought, you know what, this is a golden opportunity to give Kara different superpowers than Superman has. I mean, maybe she doesn't have the full range of invulnerability that Superman has, but maybe instead of that, she can turn invisible. Or maybe she doesn't have the same degree of super strength that Superman has, but maybe she can be a shapeshifter instead. You know, on and on and on. It's just... The thing about it that's always kind of bugged me is... What we're supposed to believe is that all of these Kryptonians come to, come to Earth, and whether it's because of lesser gravitation or because of solar radiation or just whatever else, they all develop superpowers here on Earth. And if you think about it, that's to do with Kryptonian biology, except that there's no reason to assume that they would all have the exact same biological reaction to their new environment as everybody else. Superman's body... And in, in his just body chemistry, it's going to respond one way to this environment. Other Kryptonians, there's no reason to think their bodies wouldn't, wouldn't behave in other ways. I mean, maybe some of them would sort of transform and become, maybe they'd look like the thing or something, you know? Or, um, fuck, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it, it just feels like you're sort of limiting the possibilities of things a bit if you give everybody the exact same fucking superpowers as Superman, you know? It I just I think Kara might have been better off if, you know, she had different powers from Superman. I mean, she pretty much has to fly. There's really no two ways about that. And if she's gonna fly, logically she's probably gonna need some degree of invulnerability. But I'm god damn it, you know, I mean she could have had uh telekinesis or something like that or uh, she could have had the uh, ability to, I don't know, maybe replicate herself or, or just, or whatever, you know, come up with different powers so that, you know, you already know she's going to have the exact same morality and worldview as Superman. So why not give her different powers and, and let her be different on those terms, you know? And it's really not worth getting pissed off about, but at the same time, I just, I will always regard this as a missed opportunity. You know, it's just one of those unfortunate aspects of canon, I guess. I don't know. Anyways, that's page five. 
they fly to Midvale, uh, the name of which, or rather the state of which is never specified, but we're led to believe this is actually fairly close to Smallville, so there is that to think about. So Superman leaves uh, Kara in this kind of wooded area and then goes off and picks her up some some earth clothes and also a wig of pigtails for I don't know what reason, um, so that she'll look different, or rather, she'll look different from the way she does right now. This is going to allow her to better blend in. And uh, while Superman was gone, Kara used her super hearing to pick out a human name, and she's chosen Linda Lee. Linda Lee. Superman muses to himself, Lana Lang was my girlfriend when I was Superboy, and Lois Lane replaced her when I became Superman. By sheer coincidence, Kara picked the same initials, LL. Superman's sitting there talking about his girlfriends, and then he starts thinking about his cousin, all on the same, uh, all inside of the same comic where the cover shows him staring at her chest saying, Great Guns. Read into this whatever you want. So, uh, Superman takes Linda to the Midvale Orphanage, and I'm not sure if this is super dickery or what. I mean, Superman was raised by Jonathan and Martha Kent, and here he is just kind of abandoning her to an orphanage, but, I mean, he kind of has a point. You know, she's going to need to learn how to use her superpowers, and no one should be allowed to suspect any kind of a connection between Clark, Superman, Linda, and Supergirl. So, on the one hand, I can't fault his logic. On the other hand, dude, there are some things that are maybe more important than your secret identity. So... I don't know. Whatever. Just a story. So, Kara, or I should say Linda, promises to keep her, uh, her superpowers secret for the time being. Secret from everybody. Later, Miss Hart, one of the, uh, I guess, den mothers of this orphanage, shows uh, Kara to her room, which has got a, a, a broken mirror, a fucked up bed, and the entire room itself is just covered in dust. So Kara fixes her bed using super strength, cleans out the room, all the dust and everything, by blowing all the dust out the window using her super breath, and then uses the heat of her x-ray vision to repair the uh, broken mirror. She then uses her x-ray vision to keep, a, uh, keep watch on the other kids in the, uh, in the orphanage. Once night falls, she switches back to her Supergirl outfit and swoops over Midvale, thinking to herself... Midvale is a pretty little, uh, pretty little town. I like it already. Maybe I can still do super deeds uh, for worthy people without being seen, like a sort of guardian angel. Later, she swings by a movie theater because her agreement is to stay out of sight, and she thinks to herself as she looks at this poster uh, advertising old, uh, old-time films and history of Superboy in Smallville. She thinks to herself, why? That movie's about Superman when he was my age. I'm proud of the fame and honor my cousin has earned all his life. And then she thinks to herself, Will I someday do as good a job in Midvale as Supergirl? What will the future bring for me? And the only thing I can think of right there is the cover of Crisis on Infinite Earths, number seven. Anyway... 
We see a final panel of Supergirl swooping through the window of the Midvale Orphanage again with a caption that says, If you want to find out, readers, you can. Supergirl's adventures will continue regularly hereafter in Action Comics, along with the doings of her famous cousin, Superman. See the next issue for another thrilling story about this girl of steel, a brand new member of our super family, along with Superboy and Superman. And I gotta tell you, I fucking love this story, the Supergirl from Krypton. I mean, yeah, I've got the I've got those little quibbles about the fact that her her range of powers is is virtually identical to Superman's, and for that matter, so is her worldview. I don't really think that she's as different from Superman as she might have been. And those are two things that, by the way, I think haunted Supergirl for decades. Took her a long time to be able to shake that off. But at the end of the day, what this did was, I think, give Superman a little bit of a stake in Krypton and a little bit of heritage here on Earth. It's yet more blending together of Superman's Kryptonian and human, for lack of a better word, heritages. And it's just really powerful. I mean, again, these stories rose and fell on plot. And if that came at the expense of character, so be it. But that's not to say that there's not some amazing character development in here. And for that matter, that's not to say there's not some amazing art in here either. Um, I just love the Silver Age version of Metropolis. It has these impossibly tall skyscrapers and there's dozens, hundreds of them all through downtown Metropolis. I mean, no city on earth is this big. No city on earth has, has buildings this tall. This isn't just New York. This is Metropolis. This is, it's, uh, this is a fictional city. And I just, I, I love this. And I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I think, you know, this type of, I guess, imagination you know, the science fantasy type of imagination that I think is just so missing from modern comics. You know, it's something that I just, I think comics would do well to bring back, you know. And there is a, I mean, yeah, this is the story of basically the, almost the, this is the, I, I, I'm trying to find a way around of saying extinction because it's the Kryptonian race isn't really extinct. But this is, you know, yet another instance of, you know, the, uh, of a huge chunk of Krypton's population dying out. Although we later find out it's not quite that simple. But, and, and so there is definitely, you know, a little bit of heaviness to this story. But above and beyond all of that, I mean, this is just a fun story. You know, you've got Superman, he's swooping around and uh, he's hanging out with his cousin. And it's only when you get to the end of the issue that you realize... This entire story is exposition. You know, there's no villain that has to be defeated here. There's no obstacle that has to be overcome. This is basically a pilot for the uh, Supergirl backup feature that would that would start up in Action Comics number 253 and then go on for years, you know? And there's really no conflict in this story, really. It's all, it's all exposition. So... I just, I really dig it, is what I'm saying. And honestly, I just dig this whole issue. I mean, both of these stories are awesome. And 
I don't know. I, it's just, this is the kind of thing that I think comics today, I mean, our audience is too cynical and jaded to read and enjoy stories like this these days. I don't know, but I think it's a little presumptuous to assume that they are, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for at least trying to bring back a little bit more of a fun silver agey type of approach. But what do I know? And I don't mean just like silver age type of continuity elements and story elements presented in a modern, serious, dark kind of way. No, I mean, including the sil the fun silver age style and tone of these stories. I think that somebody should at least try. You know, because if nothing else, you know, these are stories that I wouldn't think twice about giving to a kid and saying, here you go. Not only is this what comics are all about, this is what Superman's all about, you know, and I'll be honest with you guys. I don't really think that's true of a whole lot of Superman stuff that's coming out, especially lately. So there you have it. Anyway, so that's pretty much all I really had to say this time around. Because of the fact that I don't know when this episode's coming out, I don't know if there's going to be a second segment to this or not. So maybe I'll see you next week. Maybe I'll see you in the next segment. But either way, bye for now. This sounds like a job for Superman. Enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Illogic, foolish emotions, a constant irritant, and freak. Two belong in the circus, <laughs> right next to the dog faced boy. True. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. At me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's hey, go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia's you. I say shut up! It's a manhouse!
My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular time, and then if you go out of that it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, it really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, my. Pre- okay. It definitely build build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join back to the bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. That's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. 
Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trenis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.